On the night before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man using the name Dan Cooper hijacked a Boeing 727 and extorted $200,000 before donning a parachute and jumping off the plane into the night, never to be seen again. Today, we will be discussing the only unsolved piracy case in commercial aviation history, D.B. Cooper. Welcome to the Red Web. Welcome back. Another episode of the Red Web. Today, Alfredo, we are diving yes, into yes. something a little bit more traditional outside of the realm of the net. Yep. We got real life people. I'm Trevor Collins, your mystery enthusiast, and I got Alfredo Diaz with me. Hello, hello. So this one is a very popular one. Have you heard of this one before? No, not at all. But I will say that this one automatically uh, seals my thought every time I watch like a... Uh, I don't know, like certain heist videos. I'm just uh -huh. like, well, why don't they just jump out of the plane with all the goods? And this <laughs> right. guy did it. He did it. He disappeared, never to be seen again. But there's a lot of, uh, a lot of intrigue here as we, uh, as we dig into who this man is, what happened with the money and himself and everything else, because there's a lot of unknown variables here. And like I said, it's the only unsolved piracy case in commercial aviation history. Who pirates? Like, I'm a plane pirate, baby. That's nuts. That's pretty crazy. Wait, two, like 200K? 200K. Damn. You know what? Like, as, as crazy as that is, that's not that much money. In 1971, I think in oh, today's wait, dollars. Oh, wait, no. 1971, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> in today's dollars, that's like 1.26 million. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you could buy yourself a house. You can. You could get a little bit of this and that. But then if it's like... If it's in bills, can't they just trace it? I don't, all right, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're, we're getting ahead. We're getting ahead. We'll get there. I, I appreciate where your head's at. You're in the right headspace, okay. just in time to talk about the timeline. So why don't we dive in here? Unpack this for me. Here we all go. right. November 24th, 1971. A man is estimated to be in his mid-40s who identifies himself as Dan Cooper. He bought a one-way ticket from Portland International Airport on flight 305. It's a 30-minute flight to Seattle. To get this out of the way, by the way, I do want to say his pseudonym was Dan Cooper. That was on his boarding pass and everything. But just very mm. briefly, due to news miscommunications, a newspaper reported this incident after the fact as D.B. Cooper, who actually was a suspect at the time. And thus, it has become known as the D.B. Cooper case. Oh, okay. So the man shows up, boards the aircraft, has a black briefcase with him, and he's dressed in a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt normal person for the 1970s, maybe a little swagger on him. He took a seat in the back of the passenger cabin, ordered a drink, and patiently waited for the flight to debark. About 10 minutes after takeoff, around 3 o'clock p.m., Cooper handed a note to the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner. The note requested that Schaffner sit next to him and said Cooper had a bomb in his case. <gasps> Obliging, Schaffner sat next to him and asked then to see the bomb. Of course, then Cooper opened his case to show that he had an array of red wires, red cylinders, and a massive battery. So anybody looking at this is obviously going to think, wow, that's uh, that's a bomb. Yeah, I mean, that's terrifying. And you never like, right, you never want to just be like, ah, bullshit. That's that's not a bomb. Right. <laughs> no, you don't want to be on a plane and say, hey, why don't you take a seat? Why don't you take a seat right here? Look at my briefcase. Oh my God. Oh my God, it's fake, isn't it? <laughs> what is that? Which one do I cut? No, They're no, all red no, wires. No one's gonna be like, do it. You won't. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think but you at got the same the time, he could just be bluffing. He, he could have put right. this together uh, to look like a bomb and then have it not actually trigger and explode. That's true. That's true. 
So he closed the case and gave Schaffner a list of demands that he told her to relay to the cockpit. These demands were as follows. Four parachutes, a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the plane, and $200,000 in, quote, negotiable American currency. And again, today, that's $1.26 million, give or take. He took back the note and then put on dark wraparound sunglasses for the remainder of the flight. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, style real cool. I mean, you gotta look cool while you do it. You know what That's I mean? True. <laughs> this guy's seen a couple movies, I think. Yeah, was it uh, with Keanu Reeves Point Break? <laughs> He's probably seen Point Break. Was it? Or yeah, it was you Point about Break. The yes. one with the bus, you gotta keep it going. Speed? That's speed. Point Break yeah. was with, uh, oh, ooh. it was um, where they were robbing banks and there were surfers. Oh, and then Keanu man. Reeves went undercover. Uh, yeah. Uh, Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. Gary Busey was in it too. Um, he, he okay, so wait. The note said it was like a, a ransom type right. thing? Right. So she's coming by giving drinks or whatever, and, and then she goes, hey. Or oh, then he that's... reaches out and says, hey, I have a note for you. Can you can you take a look at this? And says, I have a bomb. And uh, hey, pass this to the cockpit. Relay these demands. Yeah. So when we land, I got my goods. Yeah. How does that ever work? You know what I mean? I, I, guess, I mean, I guess if you have a hostage, right? The, then the police or the FBI or SWAT or like whoever, I don't know, you know, because there's different departments t- takes care of it. Like if you have a hostage, they're not going to pull the trigger unless they really have to. So I right. guess you could take a hostage, get the plane and then fly to where their jurisdiction doesn't allow them to go. But it's interesting that they said uh, that they uh, four parachutes, four parachutes. Huh? Okay. Very, very interesting list of demands. And I think you're right. You know, he's got a bomb in a plane holding the whole plane hostage. But essentially, they kind of have to acquiesce, at least at this point. So pilot William Scott contacted air traffic control in Seattle, who then contacted the authorities. The plane circled Puget Sound near the Washington coast for about two hours, giving the FBI and Seattle police enough time to acquiesce to these demands, getting the parachutes and the money. And in the meantime, the passengers were told that their arrival would be delayed due to mechanical difficulties. And they actually also reached out to the president of the airline to authorize the payment for this ransom. And all was done. Meanwhile, another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, said that Cooper seemed to be familiar with the area. At one point, he actually noted that they might have been above Tacoma. And he also correctly mentioned that the McCord Air Force Base was about 20 minute drive from Seattle Tacoma Airport. So he's clearly familiar with the nearby area, what's below them. It's clear as day, so you can you can kind of look down and, and get your bearings a little bit. It's just weird that he would, I don't know. It like, it, ugh, not saying I'd ever do anything this crazy, because that's insane. Um, even if I could get away with it, uh, it's just not me. But with that disclaimer in mind, if that was me, I wouldn't want to give any type of information about me at all, right? Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want them to know that I know the area, that I'm familiar. That anything could lead to some type of like clue or the authorities right. to follow and get to you. I don't know. I mean, unless the guy studied the area and just wanted to throw them off, because what's interesting here. Oh, dang, big brain place. <laughs> right. Is It's interesting, though, that Tina had said that he was calm, polite, well-spoken. In fact, he ordered another drink at this point. He paid his tab. He even requested a meal for the crew during their stop in Seattle. And so this guy seems very chill. Chill as a cucumber, or whatever they say. Oh my god, oh my god. is he like Robin Hood? Is he robbing from the rich to give to the poor? Who knows? We don't know anything about this man's MO right now. Okay. He's just looking stylish in his suit with his wraparound glasses, looking real fresh. <laughs> nice gentleman with a bomb on a right. plane. 
So now at 5.24 p.m., Cooper was told that his demands had been met. And then, at 5.39, the plan landed in Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Cooper instructed Scott, the pilot, to taxi to a brightly lit section of the apron and closed each window shade to deter any police snipers or any onlookers who might want to look into the cabin to figure out what might be going on. A knapsack containing the cash was then delivered, along with the parachutes to Mucklow, the flight attendant, at the aft stairs of the plane. FBI agents had gathered the money and the amount of 10,000 unmarked $20 bills. $20 bills specifically because that's what he had apparently requested. I always wonder like, why, like, how did they come up with these, these numbers? You know what I mean? 10,000, what, $20 unmarked bills. How do you come up with that? How do you know that's what, how you want it? You know what I mean? It's the weirdest piece of detail. I have to agree. But also we're dealing with someone who hijacks a plane under threat of, you know, cylinders and wires. Yeah. He's so calm and smooth about it. This guy just seems like he's got everything planned out. And then like, when you think about the passengers, right? It's like you circle around. The captain of the plane's like, hey, mechanical errors, it's going to be a couple hours. But by the time you land and then all the windows are essentially being shut mm-hmm. and you're just sitting there on, on the you know on the runway. Something's up. That's crazy, right? right. Like that's when your, your mind starts racing. Yeah. At this point, Cooper then ordered everyone on the plane except for four crew members to disembark. While refueling, Cooper told the cockpit crew his plan. Head towards Mexico City at the slowest possible airspeed without stalling and having a maximum altitude of 10,000 feet. In addition to that, he had some other weirdly specific requests such as keeping the landing gear down, keeping the wing flaps at a specific 15 degrees, and keeping the cabin unpressurized. I would assume, I mean, especially because, you know, when you were kind of like teasing this whole mystery to me, I'm assuming all of these things are so that he can safely jump out of the plane. It's, it probably has something to do with that. Obviously, you right. don't want to jump out of a plane at 500 miles per hour. But I'll get into the some of my personal conjecture a little bit later. But I do suspect that there's something to the low and slow flight speed. But we'll, we'll, we'll jump into that in just a few moments here. Nice of him to uh, have enough parachutes for everybody, though. <laughs> right? <laughs> he's he's got, like, well, what? he's got four. He's got four <laughs> people with him. And he's Wait, got himself. Yeah, and then he got four parachutes, right? So then that's all I was thinking. Like... So there's one, somebody doesn't have a parachute then? We, I don't really know what he's planning on doing with four parachutes. But we'll also Wild. get into well, they're all for him. some of the remaining evidence on the plane down the road as, as well. Okay. So after hearing these conditions, co-pilot William Radishak told Cooper that another refueling would have to be done. Because obviously, under these abnormal flight conditions, there would be a lot of extra drag. You're not going to make it all the way to Mexico City. So after discussing options, it was decided that they would stop in Reno, Nevada. Which is interesting to me also, I should note, Cooper did not pick this. In fact, he didn't even bother with the flight path. He just kind of said, these are my requests, make it so. And so it wasn't that he was looking for specific variables. It seems that a lot of his plan is actually loose and fast, that he had a general idea of what he wanted to do. I mean, if he, if he got away with it, this guy must be just big brain, man. Like he's but, pulling these uh, 200 IQ plays out here that I just can't even follow right now, to, to be honest. And that's the question, though. Did he get away? Oh, OK. So now we have the flight path. Now we have his plan. He's got his money. He's got his parachutes. He's got his stuff. It's 740 p.m. right now, and the plane is taking off with only five people on board. Those people are Cooper himself, pilot William Scott, co-pilot William Radishak, 
flight attendant Tina Mucklow, and flight engineer H.E. Anderson. At this point, they take off, and they have five other planes following the Boeing 727, including two F-106 fighter planes. After taking off, Cooper then went to Mucklow to say, hey, why don't you join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed? She did so, and as she left, she noticed that Cooper had been tying something around his waist. So now, at this point, nobody's got eyes on Cooper, and they're all in the cockpit. We're at 8 p.m. A warning light flashes in the cockpit, indicating that Cooper was attempting to lower the aft staircase, which is really interesting because this is the only plane that I'm aware of, the Boeing 727, that has a staircase that comes down on the back middle side, almost like you would see on you know, a military aircraft that contains a lot of cargo, except yeah. it's a passenger stairs, something that you would normally see on the side of a plane. And then they soon noticed a very substantial change in air pressure indicating that the door itself was open. So now 8 o'clock, we have indication that the stairs are down and that a door is open. And then at 8.13 p.m., the plane's tail section suddenly moves upwards, enough so that the pilots had to manually adjust the plane to level back out. 10.15, couple hours later, the plane lands in Reno Airport, and the authorities swarm the airplane only to find that Cooper was no longer on board. He did leave what? behind a couple of items here. Two parachutes, a black clip-on tie, and cigarette butts. Very classy fellow. Wait, cigarette butt? I mean, can't they, like, pull DNA from that or something? You can. Is that, like, a dead giveaway? Also, the tie is, like, his... I mean, if he wants to go in the business of, uh, you know, of continuing this, it could be, like, his calling card. That's true. Maybe he oh <laughs> maybe jumps out of planes and buildings all over the place, leaving, yeah. <laughs> leaving clip-on ties. <laughs> the black galore. tie bandit. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, quick, search every men's warehouse and see who's mass ordering these ties. <laughs> he leaves a note. You're going to love the way you look. Yeah, it's just one big ad for men's warehouse. <laughs> That's wild. So you mentioned DNA samples. Yeah. That's, that is a great inclination. In fact, DNA samples were found on the tie, but nothing to indicate that the samples were from Cooper. So none of his own samples, for in, in fact, other things were found on the tie, including traces of titanium, indicating that perhaps Cooper might have worked in a metal, metal or chemical manufacturing plant. Some other items that were found on the tie were rare earth minerals, which in the 1970s is a bit strange, not a super common material to be finding, but those minerals had also been seen in the development of a recent, at the time, Boeing project, suggesting also that perhaps Cooper might have been a Boeing employee. Oh inside job i mean that's the thing right like he has so much information in detail like this guy probably uh flew planes at one point or or, or something and also i don't we don't know if everyone on the that crew is innocent or not right they, they could all be you know a couple people could be in on this yeah we don't know who's to say that florence shafter is not a part of this or tina mucklow they seem like very nice ladies have nothing but nice things to say about the guy yeah, oh yeah They're looking to get a either. cut Nice you know? things to say. There you go. That's uh, how you go. We should start looking at these Mucklow ladies. But anyway, with all the facts laid out, let's take a look at the investigation and any developments that came from it in hopes of narrowing down some key suspects. And I do want to say what's interesting about this case and what makes it extremely difficult to narrow down is that within the first five years alone following this incident, over 800 suspects were identified as being the potential Dan Cooper that hopped out of this plane. 800 suspects? And that's just in the first five years. This case is still cold, still unsolved. That's crazy. How is it 800 suspects with 
all due respect, just tells me there's a guy. I mean, I don't know. Is his name similar? All right, cool. He's a suspect. Mm -hmm. and, th and that's where I think, you know, some of the suspects did come from. They probably grabbed a bunch of Dan Coopers. Unfortunately, common name, I'm sure. But what makes it more difficult is trying to figure out where this poor chap landed because the environmental conditions and the aircraft flight speed made it very difficult to determine. Therefore, it's nearly impossible to figure out what a search area might look like in order to find evidence or to find this man or to find any clues as to where he might have gone. So then you'd ask, well, what about the five aircraft following Cooper's plane? Did any of them see? Did anyone track this guy? Well, neither of the Air Force pilots following Flight 305 saw Cooper, not visually, not on radar, nor did they see a parachute open. However, I think it's important to clarify the conditions that this plane was flying under. It was nighttime at this point, so it was very dark. It was also in the middle of a storm, and there was very limited visibility with cloud cover. And for reference, one of the other planes flying Flight 305 was a Lockheed T-33, which is a very cool plane. But conditions were so poor that this plane in particular just never even saw the plane it was chasing. It was following the flight path, but it never even saw Flight 305 itself. So how was it meant to follow accurately? Or if, you know, Cooper had hopped out, how was it meant to see a small man in the night? Yeah, there's no way. And as soon as you said, like, you know, they don't know when he jumped out, etc. I was like, ah, man, they he probably flew through some clouds or mm -hmm. checked the weather. Like, oh, man, this guy just seems like he really had it planned out. He was just so, like... As, at least from what it sounds, just so suave about it. Right. So based on what they did know, investigators took in all of the uh, anecdotes, all the stories from the cabin crew, and estimated that he did in fact jump at 8.13 p.m. Obviously, this was after the fact that the stairs were down and the door was open, and when the tail went up, you would indicate that maybe someone went out on the stair ramp and jumped, which would add weight and then alleviate weight in a quick moment which would then tip up the tail. So this is why people are thinking that he might've jumped around 813 and using that and looking at the flight path, people figured that he might've landed somewhere near Lewis River in Southwestern Washington, or for reference, about 20 miles north of Vancouver, Washington, which is a different Vancouver. So for even further reference, just for everybody who is unfamiliar with that area, it's about 40 miles or so north of Portland, Portland, Oregon. Uh, so search areas included land and water. One of the primary suspected landing zones was actually near Lake Merwin, an artificial lake just by Lewis River. Searches were conducted on foot, door to door, via helicopter, via patrol boats. And what's really interesting is there was actually a submarine as well, all by different authorities, but no trace of Cooper was found. It was arguably the most extensive and intensive search and recovery operation in US history. But the man was never found. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, how do you find that guy, right? It's like a needle in a haystack. Right. With such abnormal flight conditions, with it being dark and rainy and cloudy, flying low and slow, being pursued by military aircraft or not, it's going to be very difficult to recognize a man flying out in the middle of the air. Right? Yeah, and he could have, you know, popped out anywhere. I mean, obviously, we kind of have like this 8.13 p.m. and kind of general sense of, you know, where he jumped out. But at the end mm -hmm. of the day, just go, right? Like, also, we don't know, like, when these search teams... Do we know, like, when these search teams started doing their, their searches? 
I believe it was right away, but it also went yeah, on for was... several years as people were still looking for clues. God, and they were long. on and off in different uh, degrees of, of search. Obviously, they're not going to look as hard five years on as, as they yeah. were. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And as I mentioned, the plane landed two hours after the plane's tail section moved upwards. And so while physically you might think, okay, well, the plane's tail went up, that's probably because it lost some weight, which is a person jumping off. But who's to say that wasn't some sort of odd turbulence because the staircase was down on a plane that also had its landing gear down. So he could have snuck out anywhere in those two hours. And that would put his search area in dramatically different locations. But this, this seems to be the primary spot that they're looking for here in the Southwest Washington area. And actually it was later determined that another landing zone might've been further to the South by Southeast direction than it was initially presumed, which would then, you know, be a little bit further along the flight path, assuming Cooper maintained some, uh, some of that momentum. God, there's just way too little that we know to be honest. Like, right. how do you even, I couldn't imagine being like the lead on this case, right? It's just, where do you start? Like, even with all the resources that you have, it's just, there's too much unknown. You got to think they gave this to a rookie, right? This is just an unwinnable case. Yeah. There's just so many unknown variables. And there's also very little evidence. And, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and jump into the evidence here so we can start painting a picture of as much as we know, right, of, of who this might have been and mm -hmm. what might lead to figuring out who they are. So in November of 1978, mind you, this is almost seven years to the day after the event took place. A placard printed with the instructions for lowering the Boeing 727 aft stairs was found near a logging road north of Lake Merwin in Flight 305's flight path. So that seems to indicate, all right, he had some sort of placard in order to figure out how to take the stairs down. And it seems to corroborate the landing zone, that the search area that people thought about, that the jump time, all of that was accurate. Unless, for example, he threw it out <laughs> at the same time that they thought he jumped. But it's a very oh, interesting piece of information. Damn, yeah. He could have just chugged that thing out and go, all right, uh, you know, just to just scatter evidence and create more frustration and confusion. Yeah. I'm being very skeptical of this landing zone, mind you. Right. Officials are very confident that this is the area, and I have no reason to doubt that. I do want to just poke some of my suspicions into the equation because obviously with this being so open still, it's always worth considering, but some more pieces of evidence showed up in 1980. Eight-year-old Brian Ingram found three packets of cash along the riverbank of Tina Bar, about nine miles downstream of Vancouver, Washington, near the search area that we had been previously talking about. The bills were disintegrated, but still bundled by rubber bands. FBI confirmed that it was in fact the ransom money. There were two packets of $120 bills and then one third packet of 90, which is interesting to me. I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, did this little boy take some for himself? Did maybe he scooped up 10 uh, $20 bills? You know, it's a finder's fee. He scoops them off the top. Of course. <laughs> this is the youngest PI me? we've ever seen. You know how many uh, Hasbro Transformer toys you could grab off of that? <laughs> That's a lot of baseball set, cards dude. and gum. Oh my goodness. It's an investment. He's got this lots of knows. big league chew to this day. <laughs> That's $200 for an eight-year-old in 1980. Wow. Uh, but the way that they figured out that these dollar bills were actually part of the ransom money was by looking at the serial number on, yep. on the dollar bills. 
In fact, all of the serial numbers had been marked down, and I think, if I'm a Christian, if I'm not incorrect here, that they had broadcasted those serial numbers out to a lot of locations, to banks and stores or whatever, to basically be on the lookout for the use of these dollar bills, right? Yeah, not long after the the crime, because one of the interesting things is that money was never found until they the Brian Ingram found the, the bundles there. So a month after the hijackings, this would be December of 71, the FBI distributed lists of the serial numbers of all of the bills given in the ransom to casinos, racetracks, uh, financial institutions, any sort of businesses like that that would go through a high level or a, a high amount of, of cash transactions mm-hmm. while also distributing to law enforcement agencies. And then in 1972, they actually released the serial the serial numbers to the general public oh. just as kind of a, hey, we're seeking the help of everybody now. Oh, you can look it up now. Yeah. Go, everyone go check your 20s. <laughs> That's pretty <laughs> wild. In early 1973, so about a year and a half afterward, the, the newspaper, the Oregon Journal, republished the numbers and offered a $1,000 reward to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. And then as time went on, other publications, like in Seattle, there was a newspaper that made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward, and people just started coming forward with more and more rewards until 1975, when the insurance company behind the airline just ended up paying off the, the ransom money, and that was kind of the end of it mm-hmm. until 1980. Man, to keep that that volume 10,000 bills of so 20s. much that's a lot of volume to keep a hold of and keep track of you can hide it in uh in some walls i've seen ozark oh yeah you can hide it in, you know in your <laughs> in your garage wall like uh breaking bad he lived a very depressing life though so i don't, I don't know right yeah might not be ideal i think there's something really interesting too about these dollar bills and i do want to where so on at red web pod on twitter we're going to post an image that has a couple of uh, visual pieces in case you're curious on some of these uh, pieces of evidence, such as the dollar bills. Uh, we're going to post those there. But the dollar bills are very, very degraded, disintegrated and all falling apart. What's really interesting here is that there are intact rubber bands still on these dollar bills. And that once once again, that not all of the money is there, which is very strange. And it was also uh, relatively deep. So it wasn't something that just kind of naturally it doesn't feel like something that was naturally washed up on shore but might have intentionally been buried unless the sediment in the area is moving fast to the point where something that washes up on shore will be buried very quickly i don't know and then the last piece of evidence that we have for sure is something very recent in fact in 2017 volunteer investigators found what looked like a parachute strap and a piece of foam suspecting that it was from cooper's backpack both found in the Pacific Northwest. And that ends the evidence. We have Damn. the facts for the timeline. We have the pieces of evidence that seem to corroborate the search area. And that's it. That's, that is nuts. Right. So a couple questions remain at this point. Like what happened with the rest of the money? Because none of it, once again, had been circulated anywhere in the world, anywhere. And some think that perhaps Cooper just lost the money in the jump. Maybe he lost it over this heavily forested area and it was just lost, disintegrated, buried, etc. But also like how did some of that money end up at Tina Bar? And it's a very complicated path from Lewis River 
all the way down to Tina Bar. There's a lot of tributaries to take in order to make that path. So if the money landed around where they think he landed, this money would have to flow quite a while down the Columbia River before landing at that spot. And if even further, the rubber bands being so fresh, it seemed to indicate a timeline. And some people did experiments on these very same rubber bands to figure out at what point would these rubber bands dissolve or disintegrate or deteriorate to a point that they couldn't be used and be fresh like they were. And they figured out that it was a maximum of one year. Whoa. And so this money being found in 1980, having these rubber bands that still worked. Yeah, someone's coming back to them. Right. It seems to indicate that somebody came up to this money or came up to Tina Bar and buried this money or somehow placed it there less than a year before it was found. Yeah, I mean, there's is there any type of uh, guesses to how he spent the money or was like able to spend it? That would only be conjecture uh, at this point, figuring yeah. out maybe what happened there. And there's a lot of ways perhaps that if he makes it internationally, in fact, if he lived and made it internationally, that he might be able to work with some sort of nefarious people um, maybe maybe inside members at a bank or something to basically launder this money into other bills because that or maybe he just got so scared by the fact that these uh, these numbers were out there, these serial numbers, that he didn't want to be caught and so he just ended up saying, well, okay, well, I had this really cool heist and I didn't That's use any of it. That's just weird though, right? Because, I mean, if he, he had like this elaborate or it seemed to be this elaborate thought out plan mm -hmm. to not know that that was going to to happen right i mean i don't know maybe it's, you know it's back then so different mindset but i don't know like that's the one thing where i'm just like well if i was to like rob a place for cash i'd go well okay uh, uh, you know serial numbers on the bills that's a thing right and uh, i gotta say the elephant in the room to me is that the the guy just went splat you can't spend when you're not alive and so maybe that's just like occam's oh. razor here <laughs> but damn it, but that's the thing is that no body was ever recovered. Yeah, no, weird. Imagine if like that's how it played out, right? It just went splat or the guy just went splat. And then all of a sudden it was just like, you come across that dead guy, parachute, bag, and you see a bag full of money. I wouldn't touch it. I would try, I would report it to the police, but no, there's no way. I'd be like, there's no way. This is, right. this is bad. No, bad that's... Juju. Bad, bad omen when you stumble across that volume of cash. But let's dive back into some of these questions here that might elucidate us a little further as to what might be going on here. So why the name Dan Cooper? Why the name that showed up on the boarding pass? Well, some interesting theories come out of Europe, actually. There's a Belgian comic book series from the 1970s where the main character is named Dan Cooper, and he was a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot. The comic was never translated into English, nor was it imported into the United States, suggesting that Cooper spent some time in Europe. However, the comic was also sold in Canada, offering the idea that perhaps Cooper was Canadian. And that's a very strange thing to mention, and it could just be coincidence, but the reason why I wanted to mention this is because combining this information with the fact that he earlier stated in his note that he wanted, quote, negotiable American currency, seems to suggest perhaps that he wasn't American. Why other, why, why else qualify it as American currency? Um, and the fact that he had no distinguishable accent seems to indicate that he might be Canadian. And that's just an interesting piece that investigators might be able to pluck up and use to find suspects. 
Yeah, I didn't even think about that, right? Like, yeah, the, the way they talk about things and request things. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's detective work right there. It's looking at the fine details. Right. And if you're going to commit a, a crime, any detail about you, from your body language to your name to the way you sneeze, can and will be used against you. Or can and will be used to spin a wild tale about who you are and how you're actually a cryptid <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But another question remains, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, but did he survive the jump? Well, the thing is, no remains were ever recovered. He jumped in the middle of a thunderstorm, which is very dangerous. Obviously, he could be struck by lightning. If he opened his parachute, you know, you'd think that a parachute would be found. But the FBI never found evidence of anyone who disappeared that weekend, indicating that this is somebody who was either off the grid entirely or that he didn't, in fact, disappear, that he is accounted for. Or maybe he just didn't know anybody. It's really hard to say. Yeah just no family or anything i mean there's still like right there's a lot of things that still tie you to the, the system so that's just i don't know i would think that he's probably made it out alive maybe he comes from a long line of mountain men dude that's gotta be insane like say you made it out alive and you you know you got away with it etc whether mm -hmm. you spent the money or not man that was me I, on my dad like i would have this bag full of undisputable <laughs> evidence so that way on my deathbed on my last dying breath i'd just be like it was me <laughs> it was <I'm> me <laughs> in your will Cooper. you bequeath the the sack full of cash to your worst enemy you say yeah. you son <laughs> you get the evidence <sighs> but the question remains like why did he even do this uh obviously looking for two hundred thousand dollars puts you in a pretty potential desperate financial situation. No one necessarily goes out saying, I need $200,000 right now, unless you are in a particular situation that is either dark or sketchy as hell. But there's also the, the odd chance that he's just a thrill seeker, that this person wanted to go out on a limb and see if they could do something wild, get away with it. And that might be the case because clearly he never spent any of the money. And then the last question I want to talk about is, did he act alone? And I think this is a very interesting question that is answered probably pretty simply by the fact that he seemed to have a loose idea of what he was doing, but he didn't seem to indicate a specific flight path. He didn't even think about the fact that they were going to have to refuel. And so if there were any other accomplices involved, as you mentioned, perhaps the flight attendants or perhaps somebody else down on the ground, this sort of nebulous thought pattern here or his nebulous plan didn't offer a lot of room for other people to act accordingly, right? If he had a compass on the ground, it's going to be very difficult to coordinate with somebody who you don't even know where you're going. So now that we've explored the subsequent investigation, let's take a look at some of the popular theories revolving around Dan Cooper, and then we'll follow up with some of the leading suspects. These theories primarily pertain to Cooper's speculated experience with skydiving, aircraft, and the military due to a few factors. It was thought that he was perhaps an Air Force veteran, perhaps a paratrooper, simply because the mention earlier of McCord Air Force Base and its proximity to Seattle. That's not something most civilians would know about. In fact, he gave driving times. He was like, oh, it's about 20 minute drive to get to that Air Force Base. So that's some pretty specific knowledge, unless you are a local to that area, which is possible. And then based on the flying instructions that he gave to the crew, it also seemed that this person was knowledgeable on flying techniques and on airplanes. For example, as I mentioned, the very specific 
note of keeping the plane's flaps at 15 degrees. It's a very interesting note to be knowledgeable about, to know yeah. how that affects the plane, to know how that flies. And furthermore, I would suggest that the low and slow flight speed that he requested with the flaps down, with the landing gear down and everything like that might have been intentional to inconvenience aircraft that might have been in pursuit. The Boeing 727 has a stall speed of 122 miles per hour, which is quite low. Um, and I couldn't find the stall speed for the fighter jets that were in pursuit, but I would suspect that they would be a little bit higher to the point that it would be a bit of an inconvenience to stay at such a low speed. In fact, if it was the case that they had to continue cycling around the aircraft, it would make it much harder for them to recognize, especially given all the conditions, whether somebody jumped out. That said, it is in fact entirely possible that the fighter jets were able to maintain the same speed as the Boeing 727. And so that's just my personal conjecture, knowing aircraft a little bit better. It's something that I thought was kind of interesting, and it seems to lend credence to Dan Cooper's knowledge of aircraft, at least. Yeah, I, I have complete confidence that this is someone that knew what they were doing, um, even to the point where they had past experience with aircrafts. Um, whether it be like military or commercial wild man he got away with it that's crazy right i think i think the interesting thing that i would want to know um from this is like what have the authorities and airlines done to kind of prevent something like this from happening right because you have to think that they they've changed up some of the ways that they that they do things or run things to mm -hmm. prevent this from going down well you haven't seen an aircraft with a staircase in the back since very specific to this instance but of course there's always the increasing of security the change the advancement of security preventing any sort of hijackings of course these things happen but uh this is a very particular instance and probably one of the earliest ones that i'm aware of it's funny you mentioned that alfredo uh specifically because of this case in 1972 the faa required that all boeing 727 airplanes, which is the plane that, that Cooper did the heist on, or the hijacking on, be fitted with a device that was later called the Cooper Vane, and it prevents lowering that aft uh, air stairs during flight, which is how he got away. I gotta be honest, that's a, that's a good design right there. There's no reason why you need to be lowering staircase in a flying plane. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> I mean, maybe if the plane was falling apart, um, you know, and uh, falling from the sky, it'd be an easy way to, like, get out, but there's not parachutes. Right. That's a, at that point you have the the emergency exits, you pop those open and fling yeah. out to your doom, but So not only did this guy like stump everybody, get away with it, whether he lived, spent the money or not, he got away with it, but they named the countermeasure <laughs> after him. Maybe that's, that's all he wanted. He didn't damn, want the money. Man. Man, he's out here making the world a safer place. That's crazy. You know what? He's like the guy that hacks the FBI just to show that it could be done. Yeah, he might, I'm, yeah, I'm showing you the weaknesses in your firewalls. You just want to see the world burn. Yeah. What's interesting, too, is, um, you know, obviously he had those parachutes, and there were two primary parachutes of the four that were available to him. And the ones that he took, he took the older military parachute rather than the technically superior sport parachute. Uh, the military chute thought to withstand higher exit speeds better than the sport one, and the military chute uh, was also unable to be steered. But... It seems to lend credence to the fact that Dan Cooper was a veteran because there was a familiarity to the military shoot. So it seems that the knowledge leaned on the veteran side 
the military experience side, rather than the skydiving and parachute experience side. And to lend further credence to that even, of the two reserve parachutes that were available to him, he took a dummy parachute, which was purely intended for class demonstrations. And a dummy chute is, um, well, simply, it's a, it's a chute that doesn't open. It's a chute that's sewn shut. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, again, like another demonstration of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. um, being familiar with everything, uh, his surroundings and whatnot. But also, nice guy. Like, what? Is, he's, he's like, oh, this one, that's a trick one. I'm going to take this one in case uh, they need to use it. I don't know if he left that for the crew or if he left that for him. I don't know what he was looking for because he left two of them behind. He took a military chute that was technically uh, inferior to the other primary chute that was provided. And then of the two reserve chutes, he took the one that doesn't open, which I think I should clarify here. The FBI said that the inclusion of that chute was accidental. I don't think they tried to give the man essentially <laughs> a rock to jump out of a oh plane with. Oh my god. Yeah, right? Because in any case, they don't want him to die. <laughs> right. you know? And if he was to uh, I, I, you know, force the, uh, the, peop uh, the others on the plane, right? To use those parachutes... Like, my goodness, that's wild. Yeah, that, that, that could have been a big mess up on, right. on the FBI's uh, point of view. What a, what a very awkward experience that would be flying down and uh, only to pull the chute and, and whoops, uh-oh, nothing's happening. How do you make that kind of mistake? That's crazy. Yeah, and that's something that an experienced skydiver would have recognized by looking at the chute. So I think we've kind of isolated a couple of pieces that Dan is clearly familiar with, that being aircraft and perhaps a light military knowledge. And on the subject, Special Agent Larry Carr actually had this to say, quote, no experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 172 mile per hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. It's simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve chute was only for training and had been sewn shut. Something a skilled skydiver would have checked. And also, yeah, that's a good point there, Special Agent Larry Carr. Uh, it's approaching winter, and this guy jumps out with an overcoat and loafers on. He doesn't really have anything to uh, help himself out if he lands in the middle of the wilderness in the near winter in the Pacific Northwest. That's just wild to me. It, it, like, that's the part that, like, really confuses me, because everything seems so well thought out, and then to take i mean maybe it was just like this is how i'm gonna get away with it this is the only way like under extreme conditions where the other planes can't see me and then he took that risk and the risk was worth it to him but like everything seems so well thought out um but that little point right there was just like a very low odds you know what yeah people are saying it's it's like everything that was in his control was done with sophistication and suave, if I might add. But everything else that had variables out of his hands, uh, from who was on the plane to what types of parachutes he was given, it seems to indicate that's where his plan kind of came apart. And he didn't obviously plan for a refueling stop, which is uh, another piece of the plan that kind of went awry. And so from all of this, as I mentioned, Larry Carr here, Carr seems to think that Cooper never even got his chute open, and again, if he did, surviving the mountainous terrain near the beginning of winter would make survival very difficult, even with an accomplice. But there was no evidence that he had any assistance, and even further, there was no evidence that he even knew where he was when he jumped. And so, again, it seems that the back end of this plan was kind of just, I guess I'll wing it. 
I got the idea going on. I'll get the money and then yeah, I'll wing it. It's weird, man. That's, that's the weirdest part. But I mean, maybe that was just the only way. I don't know. Right. That, we could speculate all we want to try and get into this guy's head. But at the end of the day, at some point, you might have just been like, this is the risk I'm willing to take. So those are the popular theories to kind of explain maybe who Dan Cooper is, what this guy might know about the situation. And that kind of leads us to our top three suspects. And again, there were 800 suspects just from the first five years alone. So there's a lot of people to go through and there's no hard evidence connecting any of these suspects to Dan Cooper himself. But the physical description has been corroborated by multiple eyewitnesses and it's the strongest piece of evidence directly relating to him that we have. And it's that he's between 5'10 and 5'11, between 170 and 180 pounds, probably in his mid 40s, with a close set of piercing brown eyes and tanned skin. Hmm. Which, honestly, could be just about anybody. Yeah. Wait, what, yeah, was there no like cams or anything like that? Like. 1971. Yeah, I'm, that's the thing, right? I was like, 71, who knows? It might have been just been. That's the thing too. It might have just been like the right time to do it, right? Where technology was uh, just good enough for him to pull it off, but not good enough to, you know, be able to track him down. Like that's right. crazy. Just in that awkward period of technical advancement. Yeah. Yeah. And nowadays everything will get you. Right. Yeah. I wouldn't be jumping out of a plane these days. They're gonna have some sort of tracker in there. You're gonna get. Oh yeah. You're gonna get spotted by an F-35 in a microsecond. Definitely not uh, the type of heist you want to try to tackle in 2020 and beyond. Um, again, a lot of these suspects are going to be built on the foundation of what we just laid, whether it be the physical descriptors or the conjecture between the experience with skydiving, aircraft, or the military. So that leads us to suspect number one, Richard McCoy Jr. He's the most popular suspect, and he's actually an army veteran with skydiving experience. On April 7th, 1972, McCoy conducted a very similar hijacking in Denver. He was arrested and convicted several months later. After that point, he escaped from prison and died in a shootout with FBI agents. So it's really interesting that he did a very similar hijacking. And if I recall, Christian, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it was for nearly double the money, if not more. I think it was for $500,000. Yeah, $500,000. He also made the same demand of requesting four parachutes. Interesting. So this guy's either a copycat, yeah, I was about or to say. he's back on the market, baby, and he's got an ego. So he's going up. I don't. I just don't buy it. I don't. It's just so. It's too on the nose, right? It's too on the nose to to run it back like that the same way, and then it just seems so radically different in terms of behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess being caught this time, kind of elicited a new response from him. Uh, whereas before, if it was Richard McCoy Jr., the escape maybe filled him with uh, some sort of confidence to come for more at this point than getting caught. But what's interesting here is that McCoy's family claimed that Cooper's tie and the tie clip were his, were McCoy's. And McCoy refused to admit or deny that he was in fact Cooper. So now you got the family coming in play saying, hey, uh, that's his tie over there. And then the investigators are saying, well, that's Cooper's tie. And so you're saying, so why would his family want to say, well, I think he's Cooper, essentially. 
But also, like, it's a tie. Like, how would you, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. Nah, that's it's, his tie. That black right. tie, that's his tie. No, man, that's, that's Koopa's tie. No one wears a Koopa tie. <laughs> yeah. Like, unless it's, like, hand, like handmade or custom-made. Like, I, I don't know. Right. It's, it's a random tie. And I think it was uh, a JCPenney tie. So it's, like, a department store tie. Oh, God. You yeah, might everyone, be able to find anywhere in the country got, at any point. Everyone shot that JCPenney at some point in time. Come on, now. <laughs> I would also <laughs> guess that a black tie, especially a black clip-on tie, is probably the most common tie pattern out yeah. there it's used for all sorts of jobs and and from top to bottom you know from ceos to uh to to non-ceos you know the whole the whole range of people yeah i don't know throw, throw that one out the window <laughs> uh and, and the fbi agent who killed mccoy in the shootout was quoted to have said when i shot richard mccoy i shot db cooper at the same time FBI cleared him because of mismatches in Cooper's age and description, more skill in skydiving than Cooper had. Uh, there was cre credible evidence that McCoy was in Vegas the day of the hijacking. So there's a couple other pieces of evidence that do lend uh, credence to the fact that these are two different individuals. Yeah, um, that I'll lean on that. Yeah, it seems like that'll that that fell apart pretty quickly. Right. I tend to think that this is a copycat that was maybe given the idea or given the. Uh, the confidence to pull this off ever after maybe reading about this. In fact, this was only six, seven months after the fact. So I don't know if, if DB Cooper himself or Dan Cooper is turning around and immediately doing the same job. Not with yeah. $200,000. It just doesn't fit the style that we've crafted here. Mm -hmm. So that leads us to suspect two, Robert Rackstraw. Rackstraw was a army veteran with explosives knowledge, piloting experience and military parachuting training. He had a very strong resemblance to Cooper's composite sketches and had nine points of match, which is very interesting. Oh. But he was eliminated as a suspect in 1979 after having no direct evidence that could be found. But again, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence to be had in the yeah. first place. What's interesting here is that in 2016, a man named Thomas Colbert reignited the suspicion after launching his own investigation into Rackstraw. Colbert claimed to obtain a letter originally written by Cooper in December of 1971, claiming that codes it contained were deciphered and matched to three separate army units that Rackstraw was a member of. One of the flight attendants didn't in fact think that Rackstraw and Cooper looked alike, but that didn't stop investigators from finding nine points of match in the composite sketches. So you have the first-hand accounts and then you have the composite sketches from those accounts. And so there might be a disconnect here, but What's even more interesting here is that in June of 2018, an article circulated claiming private investigators, quote, decoded a previously publicly unknown letter from 1972 on file with the FBI, which supposedly contained a disguised confession. And so oh. that's as far as we know with Rackstraw, but it seems very, very interesting. So you check a couple of boxes here that perhaps the previous gentleman didn't. Right. The piloting and military experience, the fact that somebody here as recently as 2016 is saying, hey, I have a letter from this supposed Dan Cooper a month after the event that deciphers into army units that match with Rackstraw's uh, track record in the army. And then you also have 
these nine points of match on the composite sketches saying he looks similar. You have private investigators decoding a letter that was once with the FBI but is now public. And in that letter, they're saying that there's a disguised confession. It's very interesting, but that's all we have on Robert Rackstraw. Damn. It just seems like just close enough to kind of like lead us down a path where we could blow it wide open, but then it just fades away. What's difficult is that it, it sounds real enough that Rackstraw claimed to have lost his job in 2016 over those investigations, but it's not enough to connect him officially and convict him of any sort of crime. So that then leads us to the third most popular suspect, Kenneth Christensen. He was an army paratrooper and he worked as a flight attendant and purser in Seattle. He smoked, he drank bourbon, and was left-handed, which were all traits that Cooper showed while in the plane. And Schaffner, the flight attendant who sat next to Cooper in the event, uh, said that he fit her memory of Cooper's appearance more closely than any of the other suspects, but not conclusively. On his deathbed, Kenneth told his brother Lyle, there is something you should know, but I cannot tell you. That's it. Furthermore, he worked for the Northwest Orient, an airline that owned Flight 305, and he bought a house with cash a few months after the hijacking. Which is interesting, uh, because you might be able to track down those serial numbers, or perhaps the individuals he bought the house from didn't care. Maybe it was, uh, hey, let's sign these papers and move along. But again, if you but, introduce yeah. those bills into somebody else's hands, yep. those individuals are likely going to spend it, and again, that money right never back. wound up anywhere. Damn, again, like, things start to add up, and then it just kind of falls apart. <laughs> right. And one last piece of very interesting evidence here on Christensen is that he used to clip Northwest Orient news clippings starting in the 1950s, and did this continuously all the way up to right before the hijacking, never to clip another article again. So it's very interesting timing, I'd say convenient timing that one of his almost 20 year long habits of collecting news clippings stopped right before the hijacking. I don't know why that would happen, but it sounds convenient. He was then dismissed later on as a suspect due to being a poor match compared to the eyewitness descriptions. The skydiving skill that he had was seemingly better than Cooper's. Obviously when he picked up the dummy shoot, it seemed to indicate somebody that was a little bit less knowledgeable in that space. And uh, other than that, there was no real incriminating evidence. And those are the three most popular suspects because there's a lot of things that connect him to what we know about Dan Cooper, but what really makes this difficult is what we don't know. All the evidence that's still out there, all the evidence that hasn't been found, and all the variables that make this just a very strange case in general. Dude. I mean, this just sounds like something we'll never know the answer to. Mm-hmm. And, and we probably never will. Like you said, uh, the FBI stopped investigating this actively on July of 2016. Though they do encourage submissions of evidence, and if anything comes out about this case, they will always ingest it, but they're not actively pursuing any further leads or evidence. And unless any of those very old dollar bills, those 1971 $20 bills, crop up anywhere else, it's likely that those bills just got ingested into the system and never earmarked, and they're probably all destroyed and replaced with modern currency. Oh, we'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know, man. <laughs> Damn. 
So the next I, time you're on a plane and you see a suave debonair man with a... <laughs> just uh, remember what clip he's got it from and where yeah, he got it from. Take a close know? look at that tie. <laughs> the, the tie. It'll give away everything. <laughs> is, that your, is that your dad's tie? It could be your dad. Could be, could be you. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is, right? You got away with it. And I don't think uh, anyone else is going to get away with something similar to this. Mm-hmm. Things have changed. Times have changed. It just seems like he did it at the... Uh, the right time and place. Yeah, he uh, he certainly knew what he was getting into and then kind of fired from the hip. And I think that all of those nebulous facts and the lack of evidence really, really helped. Uh, I don't know if he's alive or not, but it certainly helped him get away, whether he is or not. And I would certainly hate to be a, uh, a man that looked like anybody else during this time period because if somebody pulls off a really strange crime and there's not a lot of evidence to go off of. You're going to be wrapped up in some sort of case that you have no idea what's going on about. And I can only imagine having 800 suspects to go through must have been a huge endeavor for the FBI to have to deal with. Yeah. But imagine them coming to your door one day and saying, hey, we need to talk. You look like the guy that jumped out of a plane. Can I see yeah. your ties? <laughs> this many years ago. Yeah. Crazy how they didn't really stop. I mean, of course, they're lightly investigating for for a long long time but they didn't really fully stop the investigation until 2016 so they stuck with it for a pretty good chunk of time right and i mean uh, to echo the uh the earlier facts i mean this is the only unsolved case of commercial airline piracy to date that's why the search was so extensive that's why a lot of efforts gone into this in fact i think there are laws around piracy and there's a statute of limitations of five years. And so they've investigated actually pivoted this, to my understanding, away from a piracy act to more of an extortion act. Because obviously he's holding a plane theoretically hostage over a bomb yeah. and asking for this money. And so that's, that's why the case ended up going on at least until 2016, because that's a dangerous man. No, no, no matter how you cut it, eventually just a man saying they've got a bomb in a plane... Not a good guy. Not a good character. Yeah. Don't want them lingering about. You don't want some sort of, you know, there was already a potential copycat. You know, you don't want this guy inspiring anybody else or maybe doing it again. But that's the case of D.B. Cooper or otherwise known as Dan Cooper. I hope you all enjoyed that. That's a very popular one. And I'm, I'm so excited to have addressed it because it's a really fascinating one. And there's more facts to it than I initially knew. I, I had heard about this a long, long time ago. And upon Christian and I researching this and looking into it, um, there's just a lot of extra information and details that uh, really made this even more intriguing than the first time I heard, you know, the more basic facts surrounding this case. But I hope you all enjoyed that. If you did, we would really appreciate you reviewing this podcast with a five star and letting us know how you thought about it. If you have any cases that you'd like us to investigate ourselves, you know, obviously we're not investigative journalists. We're not necessarily going to crack the case, but our ears and our eyes are always open and you can hit us up on social media at RedWebPod and we'll be checking out every suggestion and all the pieces of feedback there, as well as posting images and other ancillary content to help build out these cases. If you guys like to look into these things further, if you want to see any images, um, but otherwise we really appreciate it and we'll see you guys for another mystery next Monday. Mm -hmm.